All right, if you have your Bibles, open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 15. We're going to read through a bit of it today together, and then we will jump right in. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. And as always, the word should be on the screen. We're going to skip around a little bit, Patrick, back there. So uh, we're going to read a little bit of it, skip a couple of verses and read some others. Starting in verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we have expected, but first they, give, they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus, that as he had previously made a beginning, that he would also then complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and in utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work as well. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and jump right in. Father, I know that I feel like uh, in many ways this, what you are wanting to speak to us may come off and may be received as a bit overbearing, um, maybe burdensome to us, but I pray that indeed you would help us experience life and freedom, as we suggest in this place, through this understanding of generosity and giving, that it is good for us, that it is indeed what's meant for us. And I pray that all of us would be open to hear and to receive your word, and that we would indeed understand that indeed freedom in life comes through things like simplicity and generosity, and that we would want to have it with all that we uh, desire in our hearts. We give you thanks and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know who said it. It might have been my grandmother. I might have heard it on TV or somewhere. But some one really wise person once said, if you really want to know what a person is all about, look no further than his or her bank account. And if you don't have a bank account because you're too young for that, basically what you can do is look at how a person spends or does not spend their money. And by looking into it, what you will find is all about who or who, she, who he or she is. I won't tell you who, but at the senior banquet, there was a person who was showing me their bank account. They had like $1.24 left in their bank account. But if you looked at their bank account, it was all food. Just food, pastries and burgers and donuts and all these things. Clearly, that person loves them some food. But it seems accurate, I think, right? Because where your heart is and what you love and what you value, you will put your money to it. And many of you probably, if not all of you, probably know someone who's really generous, who's very giving. If you say, yo, I'm short a little bit, like, can you spot me? They're like, yeah, I'm good. And they'll spot you, and they won't ever ask for it back. But you probably also know, on the other hand, people that are different, where every single time you go out to eat, they're always like, they got what's called alligator arm, like their, their hand can never quite get into their pocket. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'll pay for it, but yeah, yeah. Or they're like, no, nah, I don't want to go there, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, if you go there and someone goes, oh, well, I'll spot you, then they order the most expensive thing on the menu, that type of a deal, right? 
Now, as we talk about generosity and, and giving and sharing all these things, as I talk about it with different people and if I have conversations about whether we should be generous and why that's important and all that kind of stuff and kind of get into this discussion of people who aren't and who are, I almost always guarantee someone will say something along those lines. Someone who most likely isn't as generous. They say something like this. If I had the money, I'd be generous. But I don't have the money to spare, so that's why I'm not generous. Or they'll say, so-and-so, I picked a name, uh, Jerome. I picked a name for the middle school. Jerome. Jerome is only generous because he's loaded. Have you seen what he drives? Have you seen the house that he lives in? Have you seen what his parents drives? They have money oozing out of their ears. Of course Jerome can be generous. Shoot, if I had that much money, man, I'd be generous all day. But the basic premise is this, that it's easy to give or to be generous when you have a surplus. And it doesn't apply just to money. It applies to anything right? Time, effort, energy. That when you have a lot of something, it's easy to give it. And when you have a little of that something, it's really hard to give. Now, as it pertains to money, I think we've seen in previous weeks through the statistics that I've kind of shown to you that indeed, this is not really all that true. Yes, rich people might give more in quantity, but when you, when you compare to the percentage of what they actually have, it's much, much less. That poor people tend to outgive the rich in terms of the percentage of what they give. A rich person can give $1,000 to a cause pretty easy. If a millionaire can give $1,000, not really doing much to his bank account. But if a poor person who's feeding, you know, a family of five is living on the poverty line, living off of food stamps, things like that, gives $10 to anyone, that's a huge, huge deal. And I think we see this play out in Scripture. There's a passage in Mark 12, right? It's a lady who comes by and drops two coins in the jar when everyone else is flaunting their money and trying to, you know, give off a bunch of offering. And if you know the backstory behind that, the reason why the story is kind of crazy is that this lady's a widow, and the reason why she has a little is because she's a widow. Her husband died, and the people of the church, the scribes and the leaders, basically ripped her off or stole money from her because they could, and they're using it to buy their fancy robes. Yet in their presence, the lady comes and drops two copper coins, which is basically all that she had, and yet she gives. And that's kind of what going on here in 2 Corinthians, right? That there's a church in Macedonia, or the churches in Macedonia, they're undergoing severe affliction and extreme poverty, and yet even though that is their situation and their scenario and their circumstance, they give tremendously. Now, if you've been here with us for the last few weeks, we've been looking at freedom through simplicity, and I've suggested that the fact that freedom also includes generosity. Now, simplicity, we even talk about things like slowing down, single-tasking, Right? Giving our offering and our tithing by saying no to say yes. And last week I hinted that a practical way that we say no to say yes is all these things and that indeed generosity is one of them. It seems like, as I read the scripture, as I read Bible more and more and as I read this passage, that Paul is suggesting that life and freedom, the kind of life that God wants to give, the life that is eternal and the life that is greater than any other life that you can have, that not only does it require simplicity as we've been looking at, it must require generosity. Okay? That a life with God and the life that God gives must require generosity. Now take a look at what Paul says in verses 2 through 4. Okay? He says this, in the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And he continues, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Now let me give you some background as to why this is happening and why those verses are very important. Okay? 
Basically, if you know who Apostle Paul is, he's the guy who got saved. He was Saul, was Paul. And then he basically started churches all over Asia Minor, all over the, uh, the region. And as he goes and he writes all these letters, that's why the Corinthians, uh, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, all those are letters to churches that he started. Now what ends up happening as he's going around and doing, uh, doing mission, uh, missions and, and starting new churches and, and serving people and all these things, a church or a bunch of churches in Jerusalem, the capital city where Jesus was uh, crucified, they start to have major issues. And they start to lack money and they're really poor. And so Paul then writes to all the other churches and say, hey, there's some churches out in Jerusalem. They're really struggling. Let's start a collection and offering. And would you consider giving so that we can help the churches in Jerusalem because they're really struggling right now. Now he writes all the letters to all the churches and this thing called the collection starts to happening. And then the church in Corinth, Corinthians, the church in Corinth, church and other places, they start to respond. They start to give. Now, the reason why he writes this in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians is they started and then they stopped. And then to encourage them to keep on going, he uses an example of the Macedonian church and says, basically, look at them. If you consider what they're doing, I would encourage you, really urge you strongly to think about continuing your giving. Now, the thing about the Macedonian churches that you have to understand is that they're part of Roman cities which means they're under the occupation of the Roman Empire, which means that's why they're under severe affliction. They have persecution going on where they're literally fighting for their lives, like physical lives because of the Roman government, right, that they're under. But even though they're undergoing a bunch of affliction, and because of this, they're, su they're supremely poor, when the letter comes out to them from Paul saying, hey, would you consider giving to these other poor churches in Jerusalem? They respond and say, yes, we'll give. And the situation seems to me that Paul then goes to them and goes, hey, you know what? I know. Thank you for the heart. Like, really, I'm super encouraged. I'm humbled that you want to give. But I know your situation isn't any better than the churches in Jerusalem. So how about you just hold on to it? We don't need it. You'll be all right. But then what they do, even though Paul tells them you don't have to give, they beg Paul. So no, 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 no. Paul, 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 you don't understand. We have to give. I know it doesn't amount to much in quantity, but we have to give. Don't stop us. Don't let us not give because we must, okay? Now, maybe this is why Paul in verses 7 through 8 that we read, he says, See that you abound in this gracious work, giving and generosity, and indeed prove the sincerity of your love. And in chapter 9, verse 13 of the same book, he says, This ministry, giving and being generous, proves your, mine, our obedience and confession of the gospel. Here's the point. Generosity, generous giving, or a generous heart, plain and simple, proves that we know and live the gospel. Okay? So much so that a poor church undergoing severe affliction. Think of some really tough times in your life where things were going terribly and you had no money and all the they beg him to allow them to give to this church. And most interestingly, another little side note, the churches in Jerusalem, history shows us, they never met. And they were never going to meet. They were giving to a cause to which they would have never seen anything happen. They would have never been able to see what their money would have done, but they were wanting and begging to give. Now, let, like, think about that for a second. Like, let it sink in. A generous heart or a generous giver or a generosity proves that you and I know and live the gospel. And as you know, 
Generally, if I ever make a statement like that, you also know that the inverse is coming, that if that is indeed true and striking as it may be, the inverse is equally startling and striking. Because if generous giving, a generous heart, generosity equals means that you and I know and live the gospel, then a stingy, selfish, hoarding heart inversely would also say that you and I don't know the gospel. You follow? If you are generous and you are a giver and you are freely sharing of the things that you have, it indicates that you know the gospel. And if you're a stingy, hoarding, selfish, I can't give, that type of person, it may suggest to you, as Paul writes, that you and I do not know the gospel. Therefore, you do not know God. Therefore, you do not have life and therefore have any freedom. Now, if you're understanding, I just made a major claim. And you have to ask yourself, okay, is that really true? I think it is. And I'm going to try to prove it to you via what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians by answering why we have to give and be generous and how we ought to be generous. Okay? Now let's outline the major issue that we have going on here, okay, if you're following. The major issue that we're trying to address here isn't really about money or generosity specifically. The major issue, and it's been the kind of question that we've been asking, though I've never asked it in this way throughout this entire series, is this. And this is how Tim Keller puts it. And I just copied it from him. He says this. If Jesus sacrificed, it should be on the screen. If Jesus sacrificed everything for me, if I'm now loved and secured in him, if I'm saved by grace, how should that affect the way I live? Basically what he's saying is, if I am a Christian, if you consider yourself a Christian, someone who knows the gospel, someone who knows God's love, someone who's received salvation, all that stuff. How should that change the way that you live? Because it must change something. And as I've been suggesting for the last little, little bit here, simplicity is definitely one thing that should change. And the one thing that I'm suggesting today, and a major one, is generosity is another thing. That you go from someone who isn't generous to someone who is generous. Now again, the major question then is why? Pastor, why? Why is generosity so important? And here's the reason why. Because if you grasp the gospel, it will naturally then produce in you and I a financial generosity. The Macedonian church, as they were giving, Paul describes it as they're giving and they're serving as a diakonia, which is a Greek word that means humble and costly service to the practical need of others. And he says this proves that we are Christians. See, Christians, as Jesus' followers and his people and his disciples, are people, as Jesus would, who see a need, and when you see a need, you respond in love. It's like the Samaritan, Good Samaritan story, right? A good Christian or a proper Christian or a Jesus Christian, if you want to call it that, are people who see a need and respond to it and not just walk away. This is why I encourage missions every summer for all of you. That as you recognize needs in the world, that you would take it upon yourself to go and to be and to move and to help in ways that you can. Now, prayer is very effective, but I think there's something to be said about the practical meeting of needs that are there. 
But again, you still might be asking the question, like, why? Pastor, why do I do this? You still haven't really gotten to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter lies in verse 9. And we'll read it together. It should be on the screen. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. If we're asking why generosity, why do I have to be generous? Why does generosity prove that I am a Christian? It's simply because it's what Jesus did, or better, it is who he is. Philippians 2 suggests that God, that the way that he sees himself as God is one who empties and gives so that others may live. Now I want you to dig deeper with me and notice what this says about generosity, okay? Generally, the world and we, likewise, take on this attitude and approach. I will give when I have enough to give. Therefore, I cannot give because I do not have enough to give right now. I'm barely surviving, so wait until I have more and I will give. We take this attitude with everything. If I ask you to serve in the church, you say, oh, I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. My faith isn't good enough, so I'm not ready. When I'm good and ready, I will serve. When I'm more loving, I will do this. When I'm more this, when I do this. When I have surplus and an abundance, I will do this. But I think you and I will agree, practically, this doesn't ever really work out, does it? And the statistics, I think, prove it to be true. But here's the really interesting thing about this attitude about giving when we, are in a, when we have abundance and not, or, and not giving when we have little. See, when you and I have an abundance, whether it's money or whatever it may be, I think a lot of times the motivation for giving is because of this little, little tiny bit of guilt that you have in your heart. Because you recognize how much you have, you say to yourself, I have so much I should give. It's what you should do. And you probably said that to your friends. Dude, you're so rich. Help a brother out. Dude, you have a car. I don't. Help a brother out. Give me a ride. Or the other motivations can be this. It's because you desire self-esteem and to feel good about yourself that you might give. You might say things like, look at me. I'm generous. I'm giving to the poor. Or maybe you want to be able to say and look at yourself in the mirror and be like, it's a good person. I'm a good person because I give and I'm generous. See, when you have abundance, that's kind of how things go. You're motivated by what you have. And you're motivated kind of by the guilt of knowing that you have a lot more than others. Right? But if you were to be poor, or if you were to have very little of the thing that you wanted to give or being asked to give, all of those motivations and reasons, they vanish. They're impossible. If you don't have much, you can't say, oh, I give because I have a lot. I should. No, 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 that doesn't work. If you are poor and you have little, you have to dig much deeper to find reasons to give. And this is why Jesus shows us how we should give. See, it says here that Jesus is rich, very rich, and I think you and I would agree. But Jesus doesn't give because he has enough to spare, which he does, right? Jesus doesn't simply give Enough that he can say, no, 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 Jesus gives away his riches. Did you catch that? See, Jesus gives his power, his status, and he becomes totally vulnerable. Can you imagine the God who speaks everything into existence 
can name and say and point and make things do and as they do, even has the power as a human being to walk on water to create, you know, literally nothing out of, you know, something out of nothing. He gives everything so that you and I can have life. I've said this before, but you do know that before Jesus became human, he didn't have a thing, anything called skin, which means he didn't have the ability to bleed or to hurt or to bruise or to pain. But he took that so that we, one day, didn't have to. You do realize Jesus never had to, Jesus never had to be, a, you know, undergo, had to be spit at, had to be, you know, sworn at and do all these things. No, 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 he didn't have to do any of that. Jesus didn't have the ability to bleed or bruise or suffocate or any of that stuff before he became us, but he gives his riches, and not just a little bit, he gives all of it to the point of becoming poor so that we might become rich and swap places with us. But here's what this means. And I'm going to get your attention with this, but here's what this means. Okay, if, what, if all of this that I've been saying is true, it means that giving, right, that gospel generosity or gospel giving or giving motivated and in response to Jesus' giving simply does not even begin until it requires our sacrifice and discomfort. Let me put it differently. If your and mine, if our giving doesn't hurt, it doesn't make us uncomfortable, it doesn't make us nervous of some kind, it isn't even real giving, not when you consider the standard that is Jesus. And as I said, you and I aren't giving generously, then it may prove that you and I do not know Jesus. Maybe this is why the Macedonian church begged Paul, no, let us give. They knew something that we simply don't seem to understand. And if you're following, at this point, you should feel nervous and humbled. At the least, it should start to make you rethink your attitude about money, possessions, what you and I have, or how hard or how loose you and I hold on to things that we think are ours. It should make you ask, am I generous? Why or why not? See, I want to I frame the question in such a way that maybe you haven't been framed. When I was growing up, people told me that I should be generous because it's what good Christians do. No, 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 that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not what Paul is saying, okay? I want to re-flip the question for you. The reason why you and I should be generous is because if you are not generous, it may indicate that you do not know Jesus at all. Forget practical obligation. That goes out the door. We're talking about something totally different. The question is, when I ask, am I generous? Why or why not? The next question that must come to mind is, have I really grasped the gospel? Or have I really accepted all of it rather than just some of it? Which then, if you're following the trail of questions, you might be asking, like, what's holding me back? What am I missing? How is it that I then become generous? Well, Paul tells us, and I'm going to tell you. Read with me verses 1 and 2. Again, hopefully it'll be on the screen. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I love this verse because it proves to me again and again, like as it is with any other Christian duty or characteristic or whatever, that you and I will not become more generous, more patient, more loving, more faithful, or any of those other wonderful words simply by gritting our teeth and saying, I'm going to become more of this today. You can stop that. Don't even begin. 
You're not going to get up one day and say, I'm going to be more patient, I'm going to be more compassionate, I'm going to be more generous, and then actually become that. It might last for a day, maybe two, if you're really stubborn, maybe a week, but after that it fades. You don't get to become something that Jesus says is important simply by trying harder. Now at this point you might be saying, well, pastor, then you create a very, very big problem in my life because up until this point, however old you are, I've been only taught that the way that I get better at something, the way that I become something that I want, is I work at it. I try. If I want to be a better ball player, I get in the gym and I shoot and I practice. If I want to be a better musician, I get on the guitar, on the piano, and I practice. If I want to become smarter and get better grades, I get into the library and I open my books and I try harder and harder and harder. Well, the thing about the gospel is that that method doesn't work. And look at what he says, okay? And the reason why I say this is because of what he says. He says first, right, that the way that we become more generous or the way that we become more of anything is written right here in verses 1 through 2, okay? The first thing that you and I must happen, that must happen is you have to receive grace. That's the first thing. This is absolutely key. It says in verse 1 that the, that the churches of Macedonia received the grace of God. It was given to them and they took it. This is a must. You and I will never become generous or whatever, any of the things that you and I want to become that God says is important until we receive his grace. Why? Because you and I are naturally not generous. Isn't that true? I see it every single day. This morning, even, I had to take away Bear Bear from Connor and Kara because they couldn't share. Everyone knows the rule in my house. If you cannot share, you cannot have. So I took the Bear Bear and threw it on the top of my closet to a place that only I can reach because it's literally like up here I have to tippy-toe to get it. Christina can't even get it. Connor goes, Abba, where's Bear Bear? I put him away because you couldn't share. Okay. We are naturally selfish. We naturally take care of ourselves and our own. It is who we are. Am I, am I right? Parents naturally take care of their own kids first before they think about anybody else. It is who we are at the core of who we are. It is naturally indeed. So the first thing that you and I must do is to receive grace. If you don't receive grace, good luck in trying to becoming anything because the standard is way too high, right? Because again, generosity by God's standard is giving your riches not until you can afford it, but giving it away to the point you become poor and swap, okay? So first, you have to receive grace. And the second thing, and this is, I think, the most surprising part, is then once you receive grace, then you have to wait for a reaction to happen, Notice what it says. It says, in severe test of affliction, that's the circumstance they're in. In this circumstance of severe test of affliction, there was an abundance of joy, a superbounding joy, and then added to that was this extreme poverty, and when the two met together in a reaction, it produced a wealth of generosity. The Macedonian church's gospel-born, superabounding joy comes in direct contact with extreme poverty, and what welled up and overflowed is a wealth of generosity. Paul is basically giving us the Mentos and Coke experiment in theology. Do you know what I'm talking about? You've seen it on YouTube. If you take a bunch of Mentos and you take a bottle of Diet Coke, apparently Diet Coke works the best. There's this girl who did like, yeah, David Gary's going, Whoa. There's a girl who tested like literally every type of Coke, cherry Coke, Pepsi, whatever. And Diet Coke, I think, works the best. I don't know why. I think it's the aspartame in there, whatever. But if you put the Mentos in there, the moment you do it, like literally instantaneously, within like a second and a half, and then like explodes. You can make Diet Coke rockets. I don't know if you've ever seen it. You put the uh, Mentos in there, and then you close the cap, right? And then if you throw it in the air, 
and it lands, it'll go, and then it'll like, sh it'll like shoot all over the place. Check it out on YouTube. I was doing my research. What Paul is saying is that when you and I receive the gospel, joy happens. I hope you would agree that when you receive God's love, joy, it happens. We're joyful because someone who is so much better and amazing than us would love us though we are not indeed worthy of such love. So a joy happens, this abounding joy. A lot of times you go to retreat, you do other things. The first thing that happens is people start to smile and there's a joy that overwhelms them. So when you have this joy and then all of a sudden if it comes in contact with extreme poverty, poof, a burst of generosity. Now if you're following the equation, because all of you are so smart, I guarantee you most of you are asking, wait, 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 wait. So if joy and poverty must come together and it's a reaction, not something that we try harder at, then are you saying that I got to be poor? Because I'm missing one of the equation, right? Let's say you have the joy because of the gospel. But if it requires the joy and extreme poverty to go ahead and make this reaction happen, then what you and I are mostly missing, if not all of us are missing extreme poverty, am I right? I don't know of anyone that's really poor in here. Not according to the world. We, we talked about this statistic last week, right? 80% of the world lives on $10 a day less. 40% on $2 a day less. That's not us. So does that mean we're trying to be poor? No, I don't think so. Well, yes and no, the answer to me, in my opinion. No, because Paul's not telling us that we have to be materialistically poor. You can be materialistically rich and still be a Christian, in my opinion. Okay? He's not looking at how much money you have. And indeed, then if that's the case, then all of us in this church, we'd be a bunch of frauds and we all need to go home because everyone in this church, again, to my understanding, is way richer than the vast majority of the world. So then what? If it's not, if Jesus isn't asking us to physically become poor or literally materially, materialistically poor, then what is he asking? We've talked about it a little bit. Simplify, yes, but not poor. But again, let's look at verse 9, okay? Jesus, though he was rich or the richest of all, he becomes poor. Now, Jesus in his physical life was actually kind of poor. He was a son of a carpenter, right? He didn't have much status. He didn't have much money, right? But I think Paul is digging into something a little bit deeper than simply being materialistically poor. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. It's the first beatitude. Now, let's take a look at Jesus and make him a case study, okay? So Jesus gives away his riches. He, in the beginning... Before he gave up everything, he has everything. He's got love, he's got perfection, he's got joy, he doesn't have any sin, he doesn't have any sadness, any pain, any, any of those things. He's got perfect fellowship with his God, so much so that they're like three people, but they're one, they're kind of all joined together. It's this total like communion and, and tonight, togetherness and unitedness and all this kind of stuff. He's got all of that. Then in a move that shocked the world, he then gave all that away and then came down to this earth so that he can live a perfect life, die for us, and then so that we can gain eternity and gain fellowship with Jesus and the Spirit and God. Right? That's why he says, though he was rich, he gave up his riches so that we, through him becoming poor, can take his riches and become rich. It's what I call the famous price tag switch. That's the gospel, right? But here's the thing that you and I have to follow. Jesus isn't asking you and I to become poor materialistically. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Because as you know, I enjoy some things, right? But I think he's pointing to something deeper. And here's the thing. The only way you and I will receive Jesus' riches 
that he's giving away so that we may become rich is when we admit that we are poor and need of his riches. For instance, if you try to give a rich person half a bagel that you didn't finish because you're too full, would they take it? No. Bro, don't insult me. I don't eat bagels. I eat only all organic, non-GMO, gluten-free eggs benedict with grass-fed beef butter. Bagels? Cream cheese? Please. <laughs> Hopefully you don't know someone like that, okay? <laughs> if you went to takeout and you went to a really nice restaurant and you had takeout and you were like, and you offered a rich person, right? A really, really rich person and was like, hey, I got some takeout left. Would you want it? I, you said you were hungry. No? It's called Uber Eats. But if you took that same bagel and cream cheese, and the reason why I'm using bagel and cream cheese is because after mission training yesterday, we had bagels and cream cheese. If you take that same bagel and cream cheese and you gave it and you try to give it to a poor person, how would they receive it? They'd be like, oh yeah, thank you. All day. The poor take it freely. Simply put, when you and I think that we are rich, we will not take God's riches because we will not think we need it. But when we think that we are poor, we will gladly take his generosity. The question then becomes, if I, how can I accept God's generosity of love and grace and mercy and not, possibly not pass it on to others? Because if you think that you don't deserve the riches but you get it, the only true reaction, the chemical reaction in our heart because we're designed that way is to give it on to others. If you freely received God's grace and love and his generosity and the life that he's trying to give you as a gift, though you know that you didn't do anything to deserve it and you can do nothing to actually earn it, then the only true natural reaction that you and I can have is to give it on to others. It is why generosity is a requirement that shows that we know the gospel. That's why I always say the first thing we must do is admit that I've got some issues and I've got sin and I'm, and I, and I'm in need of a savior who is greater than all of my sin to give me freedom because I can't earn it on my own. It's why the thing is to say and to be look at it, and I say this, I think, almost every single day because I recognize I don't deserve the life that I live. I don't deserve to be loved by my family, by my wife and my kids. I don't even deserve to have a wife and or kids. I don't deserve to be loved by all of you, to get to journey with you and to celebrate things with you. I love and hate graduations because the graduations, they themselves suck because most of the speeches, they suck very badly. But the point of celebrating with you and being able to be a part of that, to be welcomed and to say, man, you are part of my life and you can celebrate in this glorious occasion with me, there's nothing greater than that. I don't deserve any of that stuff. And because I know I don't deserve it, because I know that I don't deserve it or I'm not worthy of those things, I freely, really take it and I'm so thankful and then I just try to give it out as much as I can. See, then it becomes not about how much you have, just about how willing you are to give. And if indeed Jesus gave away his riches, his all, 
so that he would become poor and he gave it all to us. And the question is, what is it that you and I lack? We don't lack anything. If you receive God's grace, you and I don't lack anything. We have everything that we could possibly need. And the best part is, is once you become a generous person, once that grace and that abounding joy wells up in you, man, if you only knew the kind of freedom in life that comes with being able to be generous and kind and loving, the weight that it takes off your shoulders by being able to give rather than always wanting to take and receive, there's nothing like it. I think this is the reason why the Macedonian church begged. Though they were going through a lot, I think they understood that the reason why they were a church in the first place is because God gave everything for them. They lived under the shadow of the cross. Not many years ago, a man by the name of Jesus literally hung on a cross and they saw it, they heard it, they realized it, and they realized that that man got up out the grave, walked out and said, you can be the same. You don't have to die anymore. And they were like, holy crap, if I have received that, there's no way that I can't give. Someone else is in trouble, I'm going to give because God of the universe gave every Everything for me so I can have life. How can I hold on to it? It just doesn't compute in any other way. Abounding joy met with extreme poverty explodes in generosity. As I invite the praise team, I just want to finish this way. And it's, this is not to brag, and I don't know any other way to tell it. And I always battle myself and, and say, Pete, stop talking about yourself so much in your life. But I only use it because I think it's the most appropriate. Some of you have heard my story. General snippets. My dad's been married three times, divorced twice. He forced my second mother to get an abortion. I had to drive her during her second pregnancy to the hospital to have her born. I don't have a relationship with my second sister because it's a complicated issue. I got a stepbrother who's 25. Real messy. Was dragged around all over the place. My birth mom basically left me when I was seven. Haven't seen her since. All this stuff. Now, I realized that my life was a certain way, and this is why I tell you, I don't deserve what I have, okay? I, I don't, truly don't. And so recently, as I'm becoming ordained, if you don't know, I'm, I'm in, in church, ordained means to become from like pastor to reverend, it's, 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 don't worry about it. But I had to undergo a psychological profile, and I've done a bunch of these things. But this one was like the most crazy one I've ever seen. Christina will tell you, I had to answer like 800 questions on a bubble sheet, like it took me like hours. I had to do like three or four different personal profiles. So you go and you, after you do all this, you go and I went to Austin and I met with a pastor and he was talking to me about my life and about what ministry is going to be even though I was already a pastor and all that kind of stuff and doing this. But then one of the things that you have to do, you have to go sit down with a professional psychologist who is not a Christian, just a psychologist, straight up. It's a clinical doctorate psychologist and he has to take a look at your profile, look at all your tests, look at all your measurables and say and deem whether you are not psychologically fit to be a pastor so that I don't go and do some crazy things. That's kind of the point. So I, after this whole thing, I walked in, and I walked into this office, and he sat me down. And then he goes, normally when I do this, you have questions for me. Do you have any questions? And I go, no, not really. <laughs> I'm just enjoying Austin. I had some good tacos. I had Chorchi's tacos, and I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. And then he goes, well, then I have a question for you. And he goes, oh. I was like, okay, go ahead, shoot. And he goes, I looked at your profile. I looked at everything. I looked at the way that you lived, and I had to, like, write all the places that I've lived and every, every move that I've made and, you know, what locations and who with what family members. You have to do the whole thing, and, I, and you have to be honest about it. And I'm a pastor after all, so you should try to be honest. And he looks at it, and he goes, here's my question. How does someone that grew up the way that you did have such normal and profoundly joyful profile? 
it scientifically doesn't make any sense. And I said, it's called the grace of God. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. I just kind of explained it, right? And I was like, I am the way that I am because I've received so much, and I just give what I've received. I'm not giving anything that I'm, you know, producing out of my own stuff. I just give whatever I receive in a day. That's all it is. I go to your graduations because y'all love me so much, and I love to be with you. That's all there is to it. So I'll sit through a boring two-hour graduation. Why? Because the moment of being able to come out and give you a hug and say congratulations and seeing that joy on your face, that's all that matters, right? So I was like, it's just the grace of God. That's all it is, Doc. Like, that's it. I don't, I don't know what else to tell you. And just kind of, and he was like, can you explain that a little bit to me? So I just kind of went on and explained a little bit. And then he looked at me and he goes, I've been doing this for about 20 years. And he goes, a lot of people say what you say, but you're the only one that I truly, genuinely believe to be authentically true. And I said, I don't, I don't, I don't got much else for you. It's just the grace of God. So I'm not calling you to be generous for generous sake. I'm not calling you to be loving to be loving sake. I'm not calling you to be simple simply to be simple because you should listen to me because I'm so important. No, no, no. It's because this life is unlike any other and it only happens when you first receive it. So the question is, have you received it? And when you do, it'll just come on out. And when it starts to come on out, you'll start to experience a freedom that you've never experienced before and a life that you've never you know, thought that was possible. And hopefully what you'll do is you'll just taste it and you'll want it more and more and more rather than the crap that we love to eat and to drink and to live all the time. But this glorious goodness of God's love, an attitude that says, even though I don't have anything, I will give my all unto others because that might give them life. And as I've said, there's nothing better that you can do with your life, not just for others, but for you than to bring life. The best life is one that brings life unto others. So ask yourself, am I generous? Why or why not? What's holding me back? And as you think about that, then process and say, God, would you help me to receive this gracious gift of your riches? And may I love and live in the riches and be able to give it away because you've given everything to me and so I give everything to you and beyond because there's only one way to live that's good enough and that's the way of generosity, simplicity, love, freedom, and the rest. So as we begin and just kind of respond, will you take a minute and just think? I don't know what your life has been like lately, but I think you are the best judge of whether your life has been one of love and grace and generosity and goodness whether it's been one of selfishness and evil and pain and hurt. And as you do, as you pray, will you ask God, God, give me your riches, that though I am poor, you would make me rich. And that you would live in that. Day by day, each and every single day, living and experiencing the price tag switch each and every single day. So you take some time to pray, ask God, And uh, because of time, we're going to finish just with one song, uh, praise band. And may God's glorious riches ever abound upon you so that you may live out of his riches and nothing else. So let's take the time to pray and then we'll respond with song.